From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Birds, bees, and butterflies aren't just pretty, they pollinate many of the plants that feed us. Squash, pumpkin, zucchini are actually all pollinated by these squash bees. And these bee expanded its range dramatically thanks to the cultivation of crops outside of the native range of the plants that are not domesticated. How Native American farmers helped spread the squash bee. Also how permaculture can transform an ordinary suburban backyard into a cornucopia of delicious food. We have blueberries and service berries and raspberries and hazelnuts and grapes and rhubarb and strawberries. So in just this little tiny corner, we have all those different plants fruiting and producing excellent food for us. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Diablo Canyon nuclear power station in California that was built in an earthquake zone 30 years ago is now scheduled to shut down by 2025 with the power replaced by wind and solar. But the operators of a troubled reactor at the even older Indian Point plant just outside New York City are resisting calls to shut that one down. A major accident at Indian Point would endanger millions of people and could become a trillion-dollar disaster. Arjun Makajani from the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research joins us to discuss these developments. Arjun, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you, Steve. I'm glad to be back. So why is PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, shutting the Diablo Canyon reactors down by 2025? How safe were they? Well, the Diablo Canyon reactors are, in a way, fairly typical of other pressurized water reactors, with one very big exception. They are in, on the coast in California in a seismic zone, and where new things are about the seismology and the activity are still being discovered. There are questions as to whether these reactors could withstand the worst case earthquake with what is known today. There is a fault much closer to these reactors just offshore than was thought previously, for example. And renewables and efficiency are cheaper, so they are seeing the handwriting on the wall. And I have to congratulate them. I think this is a very, very historic achievement. So this won't be decommissioned, as you say, in the nuclear business until 2025. So essentially, they're rolling the dice that there won't be a major earthquake before then, I gather. Right. It doesn't guarantee safety. And even after the reactor is shot, there are still risks because you have this highly radioactive fuel. It's hot. In 2024 and 2025, the fuel will be moved to spent fuel pools, a big swimming pool type of structures where it has to be kept cool. And if there's a loss of coolant, you could have a catastrophic accident. So the shutting down of the Diablo Canyon reactors comes in the wake of other reactors being shut down, nuclear power reactors. I'm thinking of Vermont, Yankee. What's going on? What's the trend here? The trend is these reactors are getting old. And when you get old, you need replacement parts. And so the cost of operating these reactors is going up. And the cost of efficiency is coming down, especially solar energy has dramatically declined in cost. So the competitiveness of existing reactors is declining. In the case of California, there's an additional factor. 
because California has a requirement of 50% renewables, mainly solar and wind, by 2030. So as you move to solar and wind, you need flexible resources to complement them. And nuclear power is about the worst there is. And I think PG&E has acknowledged this in their statement. So I gather there is no worry that California is going to be able to replace the power that comes from the Diablo Canyon nuclear complex with renewables. If you plan a shutdown the way Diablo Canyon shutdown is planned, then you can build up your efficiency. There are explicit targets in the agreement. You can build up the jobs that go with that. You can build up renewables. So now what PG&E has done is it has committed to renewables more than is legally required by the state of California, recognizing that if you're getting rid of nuclear, shutting them down, you will need to replace that by zero carbon resources. So planning a shutdown, I think, is the best way forward for really what is a 20th century technology. You say that the nuclear fleet of power reactors is aging. What's the situation with Indian Point, that complex is just outside of New York City, where there's been a fight, I guess, there's litigation with the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission by some NGOs trying to get one of those reactors kept offline? Well, Indian Point is older than Diablo Canyon. Diablo Canyon is about 30 years into operation. Indian Point licenses have already expired. They are allowed to continue to operate by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission because they've applied for a license extension in a timely way. And if they have, that's all that's required. Doesn't say that it's safe. And as you know, Indian Point is only 30-odd miles away from Midtown Manhattan. It's the most precariously located reactor from a demographic point of view in case there's an accident. And Indian Point has had plenty of problems. It has had a history of tritium leaks. It has had a history of transformer fires. Certainly, for a reactor situated like Indian Point, I think it's pretty egregious that Indian Point has had so many problems and is still operating. Quantify for me the risk to New York City if something were to truly go wrong at Indian Point. New York City and the heavily populated areas in the environs, Connecticut, maybe other states, New Jersey, depending on the winds and the type of accident, possibly Pennsylvania, I think if a severe accident occurred at Indian Point, much of that area would become uninhabitable. So what are the major safety problems with Indian Point? In your view, how risky is that set of reactors? So the major safety problem that caused Friends of the Earth to file a petition with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was that there's a certain set of quite sensitive bolts inside the reactor. Now, there are hundreds of these bolts. In Indian Point 2, there are 800 and odd bolts. And in a recent inspection, more than 200 of them were found to be corroded or potentially corroded, and two of them were actually missing. So you could have a pretty catastrophic situation that would escalate very rapidly. This is recognized by the NRC as far back as 1998, but they didn't require the reactor operators to do anything. The fact that the NRC has not required routine inspections and the potential damage has built up to 227 bolts, this, I think, indicates a laxness on the part of NRC 
that is specially intolerable with respect to a reactor like Indian Point. So what's the future for nuclear energy in the United States and globally? I think the future for nuclear energy is past. So we have a certain number of power plants. They will be phased out one way or another. They're going to become more and more expensive to operate. Renewables and efficiency and now storage are becoming so cheap in combination. So in such a circumstance, I think it will go away. The question is how fast and whether we can do it in an orderly way. And then we come back to Diablo Canyon. I think Diablo Canyon agreement is very historic because it is showing an orderly way to go from an old, centralized, inflexible model to a new model, more democratized, renewable, more dispersed, and more resilient. Arjun Makajani is president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you so much, Steve. Really good to be back. Off Beyond the Headlines now to catch up with Peter Dykstra. Peter's with dailyclimate.org and environmental health news. That's ehn.org. And is on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. Hello, Peter. Hi, Steve. Since it's not always easy to find good news on this beat, let's bring some major good news front and center. In a paper in the journal Science comes confirmation that the huge ozone hole over the Antarctic has begun to heal itself. Scientists have been predicting this would happen, but uh, this is some actual hard evidence? Correct. And research back in the 1980s showed man-made chemicals like chlorofluorocarbons uh, found in refrigeration and spray cans and other things was destroying ozone up in the stratosphere that helped block harmful ultraviolet radiation from the sun. An ozone hole showed up over the South Pole and a somewhat smaller one in the Arctic, raising concerns that the continued loss of protective ozone would cause skin cancer rates to skyrocket. But as I recall, the world's nations actually got together and they agreed to outlaw the worst ozone destroyers. They did. The Montreal Protocol of 1987 is an environmental treaty that worked, in part because industry got on board, along with some very unlikely tree huggers like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. This new study is confirmation that the ozone holes look like they're on a path toward extinction. And that's the kind of extinction we can handle, Peter. Many people think that we'll need some equally unlikely tree huggers to bring us the good news someday on global warming. Hey, what else do you have for us? Well, let's go from the good news to a hotly disputed issue where neither side is happy with the news they've gotten. The European Union, long a leader in environmental health issues, turned back calls to block reapproval of the herbicide glyphosate. Then they also refused industry lobbying to reauthorize glyphosate use for up to 15 years. And instead, the EU set a temporary approval until the end of 2017. Well, the World Health Organization has declared glyphosate to be probably carcinogenic in humans. And there's also concern that the chemical can act as an endocrine disruptor. And other studies from the German government and from the EU's food safety branch have argued in the other direction, that glyphosate is not a likely carcinogen and its health impacts aren't proven. But that's where the mess begins. Do tell. Environmentalists and many scientists are upset that glyphosate was given even a short reprieve. The chemical industry is frustrated by the uncertainty of not knowing if they'll be shot down in 18 months, especially with a proposed merger of two ag chemical giants, Bayer and Monsanto, being discussed right now. Glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Monsanto's herbicide Roundup, is one of the most lucrative chemical products in the world today. And the dueling scientific studies are a familiar scenario. They are. And with the dueling scientists come accusations of manipulating that science, with some of the strongest charges being that some EU scientists have financial ties to glyphosate manufacturers. There's no telling where this one's going to end, but I've got a little possible good news in our history file this week. 
possible good news is good news enough, fire away. We've had quite a colorful and unfortunate history of killing off trees, not with fire, nor axes, nor chainsaws, but with bugs and disease. Dutch elm trees, butternuts, dogwoods in some areas, and currently insects going after pine trees in the west and ash trees in the east. But 110 years ago this month, the New York Zoological Society published a paper warning against the granddaddy of them all, if in fact a fungus can be a granddaddy. But the chestnut blight nearly wiped out all of the American chestnut trees in the first half of the 20th century. Chestnut trees used to dominate some American forests. We use them for food and firewood, railroad ties, furniture, and we also use them for literature because Thoreau and Longfellow and Robert Frost, among others, all wrote about chestnut trees. But we almost lost them, so I presume the possible good news is the recovery of the American chestnut, huh? Yes, there's a lot being done, and we may not know the results for nearly a century, but currently thousands of trees are being bred to resist the chestnut blight. Some are crossbred with stronger Chinese chestnuts, and there are two areas where chestnut recovery efforts are intensively focused. National forests, that's not much of a surprise, but also reclaimed coal mining land throughout the Appalachians. It'll be a long time before we know if these majestic spreading chestnut trees will make a grand comeback in forests and maybe even in literature to give renewed shade to the village smithy, huh? Right. Peter Dykstra with Environmental Health News at CHN.org and DailyClimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Steve. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, some of the joys of eating what you grow. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth, and I'm Steve Kerwood. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has announced it will issue an endangerment ruling on North American monarch butterflies within the next three years. The iconic butterfly is just one of many pollinators in trouble, thanks to human activities. The honeybee is another. But science has also found a pollinator that follows human activity. The squash bee moved beyond its native range in the Americas as people spread the cultivation of indigenous squashes. Margarita Lopez Urabe studies evolutionary biology at North Carolina State University and co-authored the paper laying out this connection. She joins us from her lab. Margarita, welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, thank you. What are we really talking about when we say the squash bee? How different are these bees from the familiar honeybee? Well, they are very different. There are about 20,000 species of bees in the world, and the honeybee is only one of them. So when you're talking about the squash bees, actually there are about 20 species that specialize in squash pollination. And the one that I focused on is only one of those 20, and it's called Peponepis prinosa. And what does it look like? The bee is about the size of a honeybee, but it looks a little bit different to someone that has, you know, like a trained eye. And one of the big differences morphologically is that the honeybee collects the pollen in a structure in the hind legs. It's called a corbiculae, and it's basically a basket. 
So the honeybees visit the flowers, they collect the pollen, they put a little bit of nectar in the pollen, and then they make these wet balls of pollen that they store in those uh, baskets in the hind legs. The squash bee does not have that basket. It has these incredibly long and very conspicuous hairs in the hind legs. And so the pollen gets actually stuck in those hairs. And one of the features of the squash pollen is that it has very large grains of pollen. So it easily gets attached to those hairs in the hind legs. Now, tell me the crops that they pollinate for humans. When you say squash, what are we talking about here? Well, they specialize on pollination of one plant genus, the genus Cucurbitum. And that plant genus happens to actually be the genus of a lot of different crops. So we are talking about a squash, pumpkin, zucchini, all of those crops are actually part of the genus, the plant genus Cucurbita, and they are all pollinated by these squash bees. What's neat about your paper is that you figured out that bees spread their range thanks to the cultivation of squash. What prompted you to look at this? Well, so if you look at the distribution of the bee today, for a big chunk of their distribution, they are only co-distributed with plants that are domesticated by humans. And so we already predicted that the bee had expanded its range outside of the ancestral range of the plants that were not domesticated by humans. What I did was I looked at genetic markers to actually see if there were signatures at the genetic level that could corroborate these uh, hypotheses that we had. And that's what we found, that indeed, these bee expanded its range dramatically thanks to the cultivation of these crops outside of the native range of the plants that are not domesticated. What surprised you most about your findings? Well, there were a couple of things that were very interesting. One thing was the route of the movements of the bees. So these bees are very, very abundant in northeastern North America. One possible way they got there was actually kind of, you know, like along the east coast of North America. But actually what I found is that the bees moved through the Midwest and then colonized the northeast of North America. So they kind of, you know, like took the longer route to get there. The other interesting finding was even though this was a rapid expansion, We did find strong signatures of severe bottlenecks. What happens is that even though these bees have been in Eastern North America for quite a while, we're talking about thousands of of generations, they still show very low genetic variability. This is interesting and it's something that I'm really curious to keep investigating because what I hypothesize is that the fact that these bees are so tightly associated with crop management and and agricultural systems, that means that probably there is something that we're doing with the crops that these bees are relying on that is keeping the genetic variability of these populations extremely, extremely low. And that would make them really vulnerable to changes in the environment. You term these bees as being solitary, but of course, how do they reproduce then? Well, the life cycle is very different. So what happens is, as I told you, these bees nest underground and they have a yearly life cycle. Usually by midsummer, the females and males emerge from the ground. They mate 
all females are, are fertile. And then the females, once they have mated, they start looking for areas where they can make their own nest. Once they find a good spot, they make the nest and they start collecting pollen and nectar. They lay eggs, they close those nests, and then they never see their babies. They die that summer. And then the next year, those eggs, of course, go through the whole development and adults emerge and the cycle starts again. I imagine that if they build their nests in the ground, it's close to the plants, what happens when the plows come through? <laughs> yeah, that, so that's that's one of the things that I'm worried about and that I think it's probably driving some of these low genetic diversity in the populations is the fact that the agricultural systems of squashes and pumpkins actually include what we call crop rotation and soil tillage. And so I think a large number of these individuals just dies every year as a result of these agricultural practice. So if I understand this, uh, honeybees can also pollinate squash. So what's the difference here? Well, there are major differences. One of them is the time of the day that these bees forage. So Pepinapis prinosa is a very early morning bee. When I was doing field work for this study, I would have to get up really, really early because most of the foraging happens the first one or two hours of the day. Honeybees and other pollinators of these crops, uh, like bumblebees, they usually pollinate later in the day and for much longer. The other difference, and, and this is something that we don't really know much about, is there seems to be that the pollen of these crops has some chemical properties that make the pollen highly unattractive to most bees. Peponapis prinosa pollinates squashes and pumpkins because the female bees are collecting the pollen. And so in the movement between the flowers, they are uh, transferring pollen grains between flowers. The honeybee goes to the flowers only for the nectar. And so it's a much less specialized, you know, like behavior in terms of the foraging. We know a lot about the honeybee, but very, very little, almost nothing about the other thousands of species of bees in this planet. Margarita Lopez Uribe is a postdoc researcher at North Carolina State University. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. For many gardeners in the Northeast U.S., the squashes are starting to flower and set fruit, kicking off the anxious watch for the squash vine borers. Of course, some gardeners are more expert than others, and in spring a while back, Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom went to visit a pair with some honed skills. They're permaculture gardeners Eric Tonsmeyer and Jonathan Bates, whose book Paradise Lot chronicled how they created a perennial food forest in a degraded backyard in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Here's her account of nibbling her way through their garden. From the street, this gray duplex doesn't look like much, but around the back is an urban oasis. The yard is just one-tenth of an acre, but produces almost all the fruits, vegetables, and eggs two families need. Eric Tonsmeyer took me on a tour of his garden. This is the season of perennial vegetables, vegetables that come back every year and make food. So down here is Turkish rocket, which looks a bit like a dandelion this time of year, but soon it'll make these wonderful broccoli robs, like an eight or ten inch uh, mustardy tasting broccoli that are absolutely delicious. Eric says what he and his gardening partner, Jonathan Bates, have created is a permaculture food forest. 
So we're trying to, in this area, really imitate the structure of a forest with trees and shrubs and herbaceous species and vines and fungi, but have them be both edible for us and working together as an ecosystem. At the lowest level, there's the broccoli and ramps, ginger, and violets. Above them grows a gumi bush. It's one of their many Asian species. It fixes nitrogen and produces berries that taste a bit like rhubarb. Shitting over them all is an American persimmon tree. Permaculture is meeting human needs while improving ecosystem health. Eric says when they bought the house, the yard needed help. All it would grow was crabgrass. We had three different kinds of terrible soil. There was some sand and gravel fill, and there was a compacted clay with chunks of concrete and rebar in it. And then this last piece where we are now was a sandy acid soil with low levels of lead. Eric and Jonathan took one look at this barren plot of bad soil and felt inspired. We actually thought it was perfect. We wanted to be somewhere where the scale at which we were operating was really relevant to lots of people. So we were looking to be in the city. We wanted to find some sweethearts and we felt like we'd have better luck in the city than we were in the country where we were probably more likely to run into a bear than a woman. And we wanted a place that was as beat up as you could imagine because we wanted to sort of set the bar high and say, well, if we can do it, then you can totally do it. So what should we look at next? Uh, oh, let's visit the chickens then. Yeah. So these are our girls. We have three chickens, and they're a really important part of our backyard ecosystem. We feed them lots and lots of leaves from the garden, excess vegetation, both from our own crops and from the weeds, and they love them. Eric picks a handful of weeds and feeds them to the chickens through the fence. And he says the bulk of the chicken's food comes from garden weeds and bugs. I feel like we wouldn't really be able to do our garden well without them. It's so important for them to, to take all the excess biomass that's produced in the garden and convert it into stuff we can eat directly, like eggs and eventually meat, um, and also into all this fantastic material that we're standing in right now. The bedding plus their manure plus the weeds accumulates into a great big deep layer by the end of the year, and that is beautiful compost material and they've sped up our fertility cycling very dramatically. Do you name your chickens? We don't. Probably good practice. Any animal you're going to eat you don't want to name unless you name it like Christmas or Thanksgiving for the meal at which you'll eat it. How many eggs do you get a day? Uh, in the summer each one lays one egg and in the winter none of them do and the spring and fall are sort of in between. They average 220 eggs a piece per year. So that's quite a lot. It makes a big difference in our diet. Though the chickens are vital, there is a problem. It's completely illegal to have chickens in Holyoke. We didn't have any trouble with them initially, and then at one point our next-door neighbors, previous next-door neighbors over here, were raided for selling drugs. While the police were here for that, they called in our chickens, which is about an equivalent crime, of course, three chickens and, and selling cocaine. So we took them away to the country for a couple weeks until the heat cooled down. And then we brought them back. What we were told was that if there was another complaint, we would get a $25 fine. And we sort of felt like we could live with that all right. I would think, too, you could probably buy off the neighbors with a couple of eggs. And strawberries. Strawberries are the best bribe we have. <laughs> what else should we see now? Let's go visit the bamboo grove and the best fruit production area we have in the back corner. Sounds good. We walk down the wood mulch path to a corner where tall, thin bamboo reeds rustle in the wind. It's a dense grove that creates a private space in the garden. Next to it is the fruit orchard. 
This is our Asian pear, and it's just flowering uh, fully for the first time today. We don't have a lot of room, so it's on a dwarfing rootstock that keeps it really small. Um, and it has three different varieties grafted onto it. An early season fruit, a mid season fruit, and a late season fruit all on the same tree. They get about 150 pears a year. Not too shabby for a tree just 12 feet high. Then in the same area we have blueberries and service berries and raspberries and hazelnuts and grapes and rhubarb and perennial leeks and elephant garlic and strawberries. So in just this little tiny corner, which is about 20 by 25, we have all those different plants fruiting and, and producing excellent food for us. Such diversity is impressive, and I can't help but compare it to my backyard garden. The only things I have growing are some pea plants and weeds. But Eric says anyone can create this kind of garden. Just start with something simple. If people were going to start with one thing, it would be berries. They don't take up a lot of space. A lot of them can handle some shade. And they're, they're beautiful, they taste good, they're mostly very easy to take care of. And every year you can add another bed. We didn't do all this in one year either. The garden beds are bordered with old logs. They're inoculated with spores to grow edible mushrooms. But Eric says they also form a critical habitat. When you roll one over, all kinds of creepy crawling things come out from underneath, which are part of our decomposer ecosystem and they're part of our pest control system as well. A lot of predaceous ground beetles, for example, live under the logs and then go out and eat insect pests and, and even eat weed seeds. And the system works. In seven years, they've never had to use pesticides of any kind in the garden. Instead, they provide habitat for garden helpers like ladybugs and praying mantises. But Eric says it wasn't just beneficial insects that he and Jonathan hoped their garden would attract. One of our goals for the garden was to attract mates. We felt like the, the birds that put shiny things in their nest to attract a mate, we planted fruit trees. It's not like we literally thought that that would be all someone was attracted to, obviously, but it doesn't hurt to distinguish you in the marketplace of other potential mates if there's something that is unique and interesting and, and delicious about you in your backyard. And that worked too. Next to the bamboo grove beneath a flowering mimosa tree, Eric married Monteclair and Jonathan married Meg. As if on cue, Jonathan joins us between the bamboo and the greenhouse. My name is Jonathan Bates, and I'm a co-gardener with Eric here in Landscape. He's been a mentor for over 10 years now. And they're constantly experimenting. Jonathan designed and built the greenhouse where they grow some annual vegetables and tropical plants. We're able to overwinter a hardy avocado, and it's already grown six inches since spring started in there. You're growing avocado in Massachusetts? Yeah. <laughs> I got to see that. Okay. We can go check it out. Great. Inside the greenhouse, it's humid and much warmer. Jonathan says walking in here is like going on vacation. Instead of spending a couple thousand dollars going to Florida with a family for a week, we invested that money in building this greenhouse, and now we're living in northern Florida. So we have things like citrus, Chilean guava, fig, hardy avocado. These are called tree collards. They get to be 11 feet tall, and they are perennials. They grow them all year round. Recycled granite curbstones define a raised bed inside the greenhouse. There's also three large tanks containing an aquaponics system with catfish and 800 gallons of water. Jonathan says the granite and the water collect heat during the day and radiate it back at night to make the greenhouse up to 10 degrees warmer. They plan to expand the system and grow more fish for food in the future. 
But right now, there are plenty of things ready to eat, and they're eager for me to try them. Jonathan tears out a handful of watercress. It's a little spicier now because it's about to go to flour, but we had a good three-month run for the watercress. Mmm, it's pretty bitter. There's tree collards in here to eat right now, but if we come outside, there's... We have garlic chives. Get some violet flowers for you. Mmm, they're sweet. Here's some miner's lettuce. We don't have a lot of it, but... Oh, that's thank you. good to eat. Oh my gosh, a carrot! Carrots. Yep. These are real nice. They're last year's carrots. This is Nantes, which is like a very sweet dessert carrot. A dessert carrot. You talk about it like it's wine. We've sort of started to become connoisseurs of different type of vegetables here, which is really fun. Do you like sorrel? I don't know. Let's try it. So it's lemony tart flavor. Mmm. It's tart. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell that we don't eat a lot of it. No, I can see why. <laughs> Do you like black licorice? Sure. This is sweet Sicily. Mmm, thank you. Mostly we grow it for the flowers that bring beneficial insects, but this is a traditional sugar substitute in Europe. And then one last thing I could show you is the water celery. So it has kind of a parsley celery flavor. Mm, thank you. This is a very popular tropical herb in Asia, Southeast Asia, grown in the water. Here, it can grow terrestrially in partial shade. That's a pretty impressive plant. Yeah. Did Eric show you the sea kale over here? So, so you gotta try it, a floret. So it's a perennial kale that I think is as good as broccoli, annual broccoli. Hmm. Where do you guys get these? I've never seen sea kale in, you know, my local nursery. Originally sea kale we got as a seed that we bought from a seed company way back 10 years ago. And some of these plants are 10 years old. But now if you wanted to get a sea kale plant, you can get them from foodforestfarm.com. Is that is my, your company? That's my nursery, yeah. <laughs> so the garden has turned into a business for Jonathan. When they started this project, they had simple goals to walk out into the yard and get a handful of fruit each day of the summer, greens every day of the year, and to find the loves of their lives. Mission accomplished on all accounts. Jonathan says he knew the garden was a success after five or six years when the plants really took root and started to produce in abundance. There's an explosion of life, really. And at that point, this idea of mimicking a forest ecosystem really hit home. It's like, we really did it. For Eric, success was being able to share the fruits of his labor and inspire others. Over a thousand people have come and visited the garden and I think a lot of them have gone home and done this and they buy plants from Jonathan or we send them home with seeds and being in the city has been really good for building a movement. Eric and Jonathan say they might one day move out of their paradise lot to a larger piece of land in the country. But for now, they're happy to be here, building a grassroots movement growing anything but grass. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. 
The name means Tyrant Lizard King, and in 1905, the New York Times called Tyrannosaurus rex the absolute warlord of the Earth. T-Rex fossils were first discovered in 1874, and now the group includes some 29 different species, with a new one identified just about every year. Tyrannosaurs were extremely successful during their 100 million years on Earth. They were active on four of the present continents and have been found in Britain, where David Hone now studies them at Queen Mary University of London. His new book, The Tyrannosaur Chronicles, details the anatomy, evolution, and ecology of these fearsome carnivores. We called him up, but before we talked Tyrannosaurs, we challenged David Hone to name as many of the family as he could in 15 seconds. Go. Oh boy. Uh, Gwenlong, Dilong, Eutyrannus, Ithronax, Aleoramus, Tyrannosaurus, Tarbosaurus, Despletosaurus, Albertosaurus, Gorgosaurus, um, Bistaviversa, Quinziosaurus, uh, Damn it, I know there's a couple more and I'm struggling now. <laughs> <laughs> so David, this was a widespread family with lots of variety? They were really quite diverse. So the first few species that we have from around 165 million years ago were about the size of something like a Labrador. And actually some of the early species of Tyrannosaur also had these big elaborate bony crests on their head, so they actually had a fairly different profile and they didn't have the giant heads and they didn't have the little arms of things like Tyrannosaurus and the very last of the Tyrannosaurs. In your book, you say, as, as, as I'm writing this, there are likely to be more species identified, and my book will be out of date even before it hits the bookstore. That's already happened. So in February, so the book was already at the publishers, a new tyrannosaur was named from Asia. And actually, as I was writing the book, three new species were added. I wrote that line of, this book is going to be out of date by the time this book is published. And then I kept having to edit that line because it was already getting out of date faster than I could update the book. Now, you're a scientist, so this is a totally unfair question, but what's the simple explanation of what makes a tyrannosaur a tyrannosaur? Happily, these are one of the rare groups where there's actually a fairly simple explanation for this. The very front teeth in the jaw have this very odd profile. They have a flat back pointing into the mouth and a very round front push it out at the front. And this is actually a feeding adaptation. And the other thing they have are the bones called the nasals. There's two bones. You have one on the left and one on the right. Basically, all animals have this. But in the tyrannosaurs, they're fused together into one big block. Uh -huh. The teeth are the better to eat you with, I gather, huh? Well, specifically for feeding. So they have these giant kind of robust bone-crunching killing teeth down the sides of the jaw. But at the front, they have, yeah, these kind of flat, blunt little basically scraping teeth. The best analogy I can give is take a cookie like an Oreo, peel off one biscuit, and how do you get the cream off? And everyone puts it in their mouth and then pulls it forward and scrapes the cream off on their teeth. And this is how the tyrannosaurs were feeding. Uh, and we know this actually because we have the bones that they were feeding on and they leave exactly these marks. You see a whole bunch of very blunt but deep grooves in the bone pulled in a straight line together. They're basically scraping the muscle off the bone with these odd little teeth. So what do these animals look like? And, and, and how do we know this? Well, the big ones were big. <laughs> they walked on their back legs. I mean, the fact that they've got tiny arms is a pretty big giveaway, but we've also got footprints for these animals, so we can see that they're definitely walking around on their back legs. We also don't see any tail traces, so we know the tail is held up off the ground, and tyrannosaurs probably had feathers. There's an early thing from China called Dilong, which has some patches of feathers preserved alongside it. And then there's a much larger Tyrannosaur, seven, eight meters long from China called Eutyrannus. And Eutyrannus basically is preserved with feathers from the tip of its nose to the tip of its tail. This thing was covered. 
and therefore the obvious inference is that the other tyrannosaurs were too, we just simply haven't found the feathers yet. And that's not a big surprise. Feathers do not preserve very often. So in your book, you discuss trying to figure out the color of these things. How would you do that? The short version is at least part of what makes up the color in feathers, and indeed actually does it in hair and some other things as well, are these tiny little packages called melanosomes, and they basically contain these color pigments. Imagine if you went to a DIY store or something like that, a hardware store, and all the paint was sold in different shaped tins, and the tins actually correspond to the colors that, it, that are in them. So black always comes in a long, thin tin. Blue always comes in a square tin, and yellow always comes in a triangular tin or something like this. As it happens, the way that melanosomes are laid down, different pigments correspond to different shapes of package. So actually, you don't need to see the actual color to know what color was in there, as long as you've got the shape. There are some huge limitations to this. So, for example, we can only do kind of general shades. So red basically means anything from kind of bright orange all the way down to dark brown. Then there are some complications because you can actually then change the colors, often quite dramatically, by how you orientate the tins relative to each other. And actually that information is probably lost during decay. So we never see blue, for example, because blue is a color which is basically built on structure, not on melanosomes. So with all these feathers, I'm wondering, what does science have in the way of DNA from Tyrannosaurus? Nothing at the moment, unfortunately. Maybe, maybe, maybe one day we'll find something like that. But even if we do, you'd be talking about tiny fragments of bits. You know, you'd be lucky to be able to go, yes, this is probably a reptile, let alone this has something unique about it, which is Tyrannosaurian. So don't get your hopes up for a Jurassic Park sequel anytime soon. So talk to me about the, the life of the Tyrannosaurus. How close were they to the top of the food chain? The basic life of them, as indeed for most animals, was very short, because uh, as with animals in the modern world, you know, most things don't survive past their first year. In terms of what they're doing ecologically, of course, it varies enormously. The first few Tyrannosaurs, two, three meters long, 40, 50 kilos, these were pretty small carnivores in their ecosystem, the equivalent of something like a fox or a jackal or a badger now. So they're making their way in the world, as it were, but there are lots of big threats out there to them. When you get through to the later giants, things like Tyrannosaurus, and in Asia, things like Tarbosaurus, they are the biggest carnivore out there. In fact, they're the biggest carnivores on Earth at this point. Something in the region of five to seven metric tons. You know, these are seriously big animals. And the next biggest carnivore is like 20 kilos, you know, compared to a five, seven ton monster. This is an enormously big gap in size. You expect to have anything from about three to six or even seven big carnivores. And frankly, I have no idea why. I've yet to come across anyone who has any idea why. The, the obvious conclusion is that it's the younger animals are kind of filling in those ecological niches. A half-grown Tyrannosaurus is seven, eight meters long, weighs a couple of tons. Okay, that's filled that mid-sized carnivore niche. That's an explanation, but it doesn't explain why we don't see that for some of the earlier ecosystems. So it's very, very odd. Well, and science has to have more mysteries to solve, doesn't it, huh? So how fearsome were they, really? I mean, what did they have in the way of, you know, cute and cuddly ones as well? Well, the small ones would have been fairly cute and cuddly, though they'd probably have taken your arm off if you were standing in front of them. And of course, the juveniles, a hatchling was really pretty small. I mean, a hatchling Tyrannosaurus might be less than a meter long. So this is an animal that has to get from under a meter to over 12 meters 
to become a, a full-sized adult. So that's a colossal amount of growth. And so actually, yeah, for a normal population, there would have been lots of baby and young tyrannosaurs knocking around. And bear in mind, you know, a young tyrannosaur can mean an animal that's still seven meters long and weighs a ton, but it's still barely an adolescent by human standards. How do they find their food, the big ones? I mean, obviously everybody knows they're coming. They may not need to worry about whether or not things can see them coming because what the big tyrannosaurs were built for was actually long distance running. They were pretty quick. They couldn't run in one sense that, it, you know, the, the actual biomechanical definition of running, they were probably not getting both legs off the ground at once. What they had was actually what would effectively be a very quick walk. But when you're that big with legs that long, you still cover a lot of ground very quickly. So actually what they may well be doing is, you know, effectively the coming over the horizon approach. You don't care that the prey sees you coming. You just run at the herd or the group or the individual that you've selected and try and close the gap faster than they can outpace you. They might be faster in the short term, but as long as you can keep them in view, you will go for longer. The second solution, which I actually posit in the book, and I don't think has been suggested before, this is actually one of the great things about writing a popular science book rather than a piece of scientific literature. You can actually speculate a bit more freely. There is an obvious solution to this, which is be nocturnal. These are animals that are four or five meters high to the top of the head. There probably is no cover that they can hide in. But these are animals that we know had exceptional eyesight. And one of the big correlates of being nocturnal is having exceptional eyesight. This would actually probably offset part of the problem of not being able to hide when you're that big. I freely admit this is complete speculation, but I think it fits a few of the limited things that we know about. So how do you know that they had such great eyesight? Um, actually, the very short version is that they have enormous eye sockets. One thing we do know from very careful studies of mammals and birds, in particular owls, actually, so obviously directly relevant, basically the bigger the eyeball you can physically fit in the skull, the better it is at taking in light and details. And people have said that Tyrannosaurus has got little eyes. And compared to the size of its skull, it does. They look small, but it's not relative size that's important. It's absolute size, and they are absolutely enormous. In fact, the eyes of Tyrannosaurus, when measured, or at least the eye socket, are the largest of any terrestrial animal of all time. So, in fact, this animal had, in some way, shape, or form, the best eyesight of any animal on land that we know of of all time. David, I have to ask you this. On the big Tyrannosaurus, T-Rex, how did they reproduce? I mean... You'd think sex would be kind of risky with all those teeth. Well, it was, yeah, carefully is probably the, the obvious answer. In, in terms of actual uh, physical congress, let's say, actually it is quite awkward because they are these big bipeds. They're big, heavy animals. Falling over is actually probably quite a big deal for them. And yet you'd need to get the relevant parts together. And that's quite difficult since it's under the base of this big and actually very muscular tail. The obvious conclusion is that the male had something, and I'm not being purent in this term, it is the correct biological term, an intermittent organ. In other words, something that poked out or could be poked out. This is not unique to mammals, actually lots of birds, in particular ducks. You may not want to Google this from your office, but I can highly recommend looking up some of the uh, biology of duck reproduction. And that's actually probably the best way that you could get a male and female seven-ton carnivores with little arms that might fall over together. But I have to add to that, of course, we don't actually know for sure. There's a fascinating part of your book where you talk about tyrannosaurs functioning as part of a larger ecosystem. Describe for me what these ancient ecosystems might have looked like and the role that the tyrannosaurs played. 
A Ceratosaurus would actually lived in an environment which would look a lot like it did today. We had grasses by this time, we had big conifer forests, we had big open plains. So actually, some of the big forests in North America, you know, it would recognize a lot of those plants. A more interesting one is Tarbosaurus. So this is kind of the Asian equivalent, if you like, which lived in Mongolia and northern China. And at that time, actually, much as the Gobi Desert is a desert now, that's what the environment looked like 65, 70 million years ago. And so this is a very, very different environment for a very similar animal. So what do you wish people knew about dinosaurs? And, and is there a dinosaur myth that you can bust for us? Um, one thing that comes back again and again is you can't know that you clearly made that up. I've done stuff online, I've written articles, and I do Q&As on websites and stuff. And what they see is I go, well, actually, we do know what color they were, sort of. And we know that they could run at this speed, and we know that they were bad at turning, or we've, you know, we, we know they fed with their front teeth. It's like, how can you possibly know that? Well, they have this unique tooth shape that suggests they're doing something with it. We have bite marks on bones that match that tooth shape. And then they go, oh, and it's like, right. Um, dig into it, see what it is that we know and how that we know this, because some research is doing some phenomenally clever and impressive stuff. And there are some incredible specimens which give us these details. In terms of busting a, a dinosaur myth, it's the one which is almost at a tipping point, because I now increasingly come across people who kind of go, oh, well, I knew that. And they're not that impressed. But remember, the dinosaurs aren't extinct. Birds are dinosaurs. Birds are the direct descendants of dinosaurs evolutionarily, indeed taxonomically, they are dinosaurs. What's left in terms of Tyrannosaurus? Are they all extinct? Yeah, so Tyrannosaurus did go extinct in the in the Great Extinction event 65 million years ago. Tyrannosaurus is actually one of the last non-avian dinosaurs that we know of. You know, that's a guy who would have been stood on a hilltop and seen the uh, meteor coming. So the birds branched off from a group of dinosaurs, actually very close to Velociraptors. There was a little kind of branching event and one group went on to produce stuff like Velociraptor, and another group went on to produce the birds. So birds go back to about 150 million years ago. David Hone is a lecturer in zoology at Queen Mary University of London. His new book is called The Tyrannosaur Chronicles. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, David. Thank you for having me on. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Jenny Doring, Annika Green, Jay Feinstein, Emmett Fitzgerald, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Charlotte Ruddy, Adelaide Chen, Jennifer Marquis, and Yolanda Omar. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade, Jay Grigo, and Noel Flatt. Allison Lerishteen composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider, Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI. 
Public Radio International.